Welcome to Defiance, and today I am talking to Brett Weinstein, the former biology professor at Evergreen State College, who found himself at the centre of student protests when he objected to a change in the college's tradition of observing a day of absence. Historically, this day would see students and faculty from minority races voluntarily stay home from campus to highlight their important role at the college, and the change which Brett objected to would flip this tradition by asking white students and faculty to stay at home. Quoting Brett, there is a huge difference between a group or coalition deciding to voluntarily absent themselves from a shared space in order to highlight their vital and underappreciated roles and a group encouraging another group to go away. The first is a forceful call to consciousness, which is, of course, crippling the logic of oppression. The second is a show of force, an act of oppression in and of itself. But before we get into the interview, I need to welcome and thank my sponsor Kraken and their CEO Jesse Powell, who are helping make this happen. Kraken also sponsored What Bitcoin Did, my other show which is dedicated to Bitcoin itself, an act of financial defiance. Bitcoin was introduced to the world in 2009 by its pseudonymous inventor Satoshi Nakamoto as a response to the 2008 financial crisis. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom and Kraken is the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient, resolute, defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Morning, Brett. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Really appreciate your time. As I said to you before, I wasn't fully aware of the Evergreen uh, College story, and then I went back and did my research, and I remembered seeing it on Rogan. And so I've done a lot of research, <laughs> a lot of what the hell's going on here moments for me. And it's a very good timing for me as well, because I'm right now I'm very politically confused. I don't identify with the left or the right. There's things I like from both sides, but I am very troubled by how much fighting is going on at the moment. If you're not politically confused at the moment, you're not paying attention. Well, it's just so much crazy. I mean, especially here, right, in Portland, what's happened with Antifa and the Proud Boys. I'm just kind of like, it just feels like to me at the moment, most people just seem to want to have a fight rather than find an answer to things. Well, I'm not sure most people want to have a fight. And Antifa and the Proud Boys is a great example. If you are not in Portland, this is a dominant feature of the news when Portland breaks into the news. More often than not recently, it's had something to do with battles in the street between these entities. But the fact is, if you live in Portland, you never see it. I mean, okay. not never, never. You, you can encounter it. But the fact is, these guys square off. They announce that they're going to do it. The cameras show up. And so it becomes a dominant feature of what people understand is going on here, when in fact, it's not much of a feature of regular existence. That said... I do know people who have had close encounters, some of them very serious. I know uh, a local coffee producer who's been driven out of business by some of this false equity nonsense. And In what way? Basically a trumped-up claim of, of bigotry that resulted in something like a boycott 
that uh, made business impossible to continue with. And it was false. Well, you know, how does somebody like me know that? I know that I've spoken in depth to the people in question and I find it impossible to imagine that the things that were alleged happen. On the other hand, since I wasn't there, how can I rule it out? Which is, of course, part of the, the ploy here. Because nobody is in a position, unless you were present, to say X, Y, or Z didn't happen, a desire to sympathize with the victims of one thing or another has been weaponized. So mm. I can say, based on everything I know as a human being, what was alleged did not occur. On the other hand, I cannot say the same thing as a matter of having been a witness. I think I saw in an interview of yours, maybe it was with Ruben, you talked about accusations have become a super weapon. Yeah. I mean, it, you had one yourself, right? Well, I mean, they've become a super weapon by virtue. So what happens is it's like a, a, some kind of high-powered gun that's smuggled in one piece at a time where no piece is lethal, but then upon assembly, it's hyper-lethal. So if you couple the idea that only certain people can be racist and other people might be bigoted, but they can't be racist by virtue of some special tweak to the definition of racism, and then you smuggle in the idea that anybody who would deny this is evidencing that they have an especially big problem with race, and that to ask for evidence of racism is itself racism. And the point is, you don't realize that you're standing in a minefield until the mind suddenly, you know, bleep alive and you realize, oh my God, they're everywhere. And any normal thing that you would say triggers another one. Um, so yes, it's a, it's a phenomenon that once you've experienced it, you realize what it is. But for most people who haven't confronted it, it's easy to imagine that it is a rare phenomenon that has been exaggerated by people like me, which it isn't. Uh, in fact, I have frequently, and my wife and I, my wife Heather Hying, who was also a professor at Evergreen, driven out at the same time, we have had the experience multiple times of having journalists come to interview us, and they're very polite, and they listen to what we have to say, and then we'll get a call, you know, a week later, oh my goodness, I went to Evergreen, I didn't know what to make of your story, but I got there, and it's even worse than you said. Right? And that's very reassuring because people assume the story is so extreme, people assume it must be exaggerated. That would be natural to assume that. But then for them to discover that, in fact, we have erred in the other direction, we've been extremely careful and portrayed only that which happened, and we've been generous in our interpretation, that it's heartening to know that that's apparent to those who have heard us and then checked it out on the ground. Well, the whole story of Evergreen is, to me, is utterly crazy. It seems to be something that was something that started out as a fair challenge by yourself to a change in a tradition that got blown up or out of all proportion. And I don't even know if people realize what they were actually arguing about. Well, it got utilized is the problem. It's very hard to tell the story so that people understand it. There's a natural narrative about what happened with the day of absence and my challenge to it. It just happens that story isn't exactly right. The true story is much more complex and it involves a certain number of bad actors who I believe knew full well what they were doing and then it involved a lot of people who were well-intentioned but deeply confused who signed up for you know, various syllogisms that resulted in them 
becoming pawns of, of the bad actors at the top, of whom there were not many. How long had the tradition of the Day of Absence been going on for? The Day of Absence tradition at Evergreen is almost as old as the college. Okay. So it goes back to the very early 70s. Now, it's changed over time. Initially, it was, so Day of Absence is the title of a Douglas Turner Ward play. He mm-hmm. was a black playwright who wrote a, a play about a fictional southern town in which the black population does not show up one day in order to emphasize what role they were playing. That idea was borrowed by an early faculty member at Evergreen, and initially it was black faculty and students that had the tradition of not showing up. Later that was broadened to all students and faculty and staff of color, and uh, another aspect was added the day of presence, which was sort of the corollary to it. In any case, it's been going on since the beginning of the college. It was only in my final year there that the idea was to ask white people not to show up. And on the one hand, that seems like six of one, half dozen of the other, but that's really only how it's supposed to seem. If you look at it more closely, and what I said in my email that supposedly triggered all of this was that there's a huge difference between absenting yourself to make a point, which I support, and absenting other people on the basis of their skin color, which I will never support, and what's more is surely illegal on a public campus in 2019 in the United States. Okay, well, I've got questions about that, but just back a step, because one thing I hadn't seen anyone ask you is, how traditionally had this day of absence run? Was it something everyone was fully aware of and recognized, or was it just something that happened in the background and people didn't realize that was happening? It's a very important question. Here's what I understand. So I was at Evergreen for 14 years at the point that this finally blew up. I was aware of Day of Absence from the first year I was present. I think it would be hard not to be aware that there was something. But I was teaching in the sciences. In my 14 years there, and my wife was there a year longer than I was, in her 15 years there, We do not recall a single student of ours deciding to take advantage of day of absence and not come to class. We would have accommodated them if they had, but it never happened, which tells you something. It's not a huge college, about 4,000 students back when it was full. And for us to have taught as many students as we did and never remember a single instance of somebody absenting themselves, you know, we would have known because they would have missed material and we would have had to accommodate. Uh, that suggests that it was at least not a, an important campus-wide phenomenon. My guess would be that over in the humanities and social sciences, it was more important. And the two things happened in 2017 when it blew up. One was that they asked white people not to show up. The other was that the administration backed Day of Absence in a way that we had never seen before. So not only was a group of people of color effectively asking white people not to come to school so that, quote unquote, they, the experience of people of color could be centered for a day, that was their language, but the administration, this official government body, was suggesting that we participate. And in fact, for anybody who's interested, another faculty member and a graduate of Evergreen have pried loose 
an email chain. Actually, the faculty member triggered the email chain, which reveals when the administration was asked, how exactly do you want me to encourage my white students not to come to class? So getting the administration on record explaining their position on this, the administration is clearly aware that there's something dangerous about what they're doing. So their language is very carefully parsed, but it's quite clear the administration does not want white people on campus that day. So in any case, there, there's a, a tremendous amount of information that we now have as a result of a small number of people's diligence in unearthing it. Um, but we know how this looked on the inside, and it's every bit as shocking as you might imagine. Well, it's very clear to me that, you know, I'd never heard of the day of absence before, and I was like, okay, no, I understand this. This is a oppressed minority group who want to highlight the fact they're playing an important role in the operations of the college. And I think that's a great idea. I suspect it was m over time maybe it had died down as, you know, as we've become more culturally diverse, as, you know, society has moved on. But, you know, perhaps it was, you know, it was more important back in the 70s. I, I, that I don't know. But the change to ask white people not to come for me was very clear and creating a new form of oppression. And it's a backward step. Yep. And it's, you know, and I, I, for me, that was very clearly a, a bad idea. I read your letter, very fairly worded. You know, we need to discuss this. There's a very clear difference. How did that get to the point where it escalated to you being called a racist? I, I guess what I'm trying to understand is who was behind the idea of this new day of asking white people not to come? I believe it was a couple of the bad actors. And I think there is a underlying generating function. In other words, there is a story about what takes place in, in a, a, a dust-up like this. And then there is the actual explanation. The actual explanation, because it's not stated, because it's discussed privately, is not evident from the outside. But you can reverse engineer what it must be based on how it behaves in light of certain challenges. So one thing that you can recognize right away is that there is a, an argument being deployed inside this movement that effectively says anybody on the other side is guilty of X. So. This was evident as the train wreck was occurring, and I told my antagonists, I said, you should check on my history. Is this the allies or enemies thing that came up? Well, you know, allies is a, a tortured term in this context mm. because effectively, while ally, the normal meaning of ally would be effectively a symmetrical partnership, in the case of the social justice movement, ally has become a tool of subordination, right? To say you are an ally subordinates you. And so allies is one side of the coin, but on the other side, there is no such thing as a person who opposes the equity juggernaut who is not a racist, right? Even if I was black and I opposed it, actually it might have been worse if I had been black and opposed it because then I would have been accused of acting on my internalized white supremacy, right? In this case, I was just simply accused of white supremacy. But there is no category 
for objecting to a bad policy proposal on the basis that it is bad policy rather than due to some deep moral failing that has to do with bigotry. And so that's your first clue that something is wrong. If you simply ask these people, if you query, well, how do you know that I'm not against this because it's a bad idea, because it isn't good for the college, because it will render the college insolvent if we do it? The answer that comes back is that's impossible. It's impossible that you are acting as a matter of, you know, in the interest of good policy. It is of course that you are defending unearned privilege that you have as a white person and we should expect you to do it and here you are playing your role. So, Well, the pursuit of equity itself often feels like it comes with creating new inequities. That's the whole point. And when you start to ask questions, so as you ask questions, the, these policy proposals emerge, a thinking person who can extrapolate sees, oh my goodness, these policies carry a huge danger with them. The natural thing to do is to ask questions. When you start to ask questions, you come to understand things like, A, nobody's going to define the term equity for you. Do you know why? Because it's not a word. Equity to most of us is supposed to be a word. It has a definition and it has a lot to do with equality. But because this is a effectively a plan for rapidly gaining power, for effectively transferring power and well-being from one population to another, the term must never be defined. So what you will get are examples. If we had equity, it would look like X. And so you'll be given an example that seems like nobody could oppose it. You know, there's a cartoon you will see circulated with uh, kids looking at a baseball game and there's a short kid and a medium height kid and a tall kid and the short kid can't see the game and the medium kid is you know, on his toes looking over the fence and the tall kid can see it. And then there are some boxes and there's a distribution of the boxes that renders everybody able to see the game. Like who, who could oppose that? But what is implied is false. What they really want is to turn the tables of oppression. And it's not even the real tables of oppression. They want to turn the imagined tables of oppression so that those who were privileged are now subordinate and those who were in their own minds most oppressed will be the most well-resourced and powerful. And if they were honest about that, nobody would listen. It's obviously a preposterous plan. And it's repeating the same problems. It is going to create a indefinitely long cycle of retribution rather than the Martin Luther King vision, which effectively is we must forge ahead towards a level playing field. Mm -hmm. The level playing field is a desirable, stable state. Now, I do think a fair criticism might be progress towards the level playing field has stalled. What are we going to do about that? You know, if, if those in the social justice movement were saying that, I would be a lot more inclined to listen to what they had to say about the evidence that it has stalled and a plan to jumpstart it. But that's not what they're saying. It's effectively a power grab and the, you know, as you said, and as I said in my email, the reversal of the day of absence was a symbolic exercise of power. We now have the power to tell you where you can and cannot be. And 
it has to be opposed. Any reasonable person should oppose it. Well, it maintains a division as well. Again, I struggle with this pursuit of equity, but I guess uh, a real equity would be is nobody applying for any role, position, job, opportunity in life is discriminated against by disability, color, gender. But any attempt to enforce, say, pursuit of equity here automatically will start discriminating against a group to do that. It's like diversity programs. Some diversity programs in themselves feel racist because, you know, I had it recently where somebody was arguing on Twitter about somebody was complaining about the lack of females that were employed at a company as programmers. And the reply, the guy said, he said, I'll just employ the best person for the job. Mm -hmm. So the pursuit of equity could ultimately lead you in that situation to not recruiting the best candidate for the job. Well, here's the problem. It might be that the best candidate for the job is going to be a guy because the places that people learn to program are heavily biased in favor of men. But that is a hypothesis and it makes predictions for which there will or will not be evidence. The claim that there is bias when it is taken as an assumption. In other words, if it is true that the most qualified person for the job is male, then the reason for that is because of some kind of bias. That, that's the only explanation that could exist for a, a skewed demographic. Well, then, you know, it's, it's, it's a weapon because surely there are lots of other reasons. I mean, as James Damore discovered, you can't even point out that a factor in the equation is surely the interest in programming that people have. And the evidence tells us that for whatever reason, males and females tend to differ on whether or not programming sounds like fun to them, right? Women tend to be more interested in things that are social and men tend to be more interested in mechanical stuff. That could be because of bias, and nobody, including James Damore, is saying it couldn't be because of bias, but it's not inherently because of bias. It's an open question, and at the point that we shut down the questions and we move on to correcting for bias that we have simply assumed exists, we are, of course, on a road to madness. So what actually happened in the situation? So there was the desire to to change the day, to would it be to ask why it's not to turn up or forbid them to turn up? Oh, it was not forbid. Okay, so um, it was to ask. Well, but again, you have to understand there's ask, which I still would have objected to, and then there is ask and the administration of the college showing up in a way that it has never been in my experience. In 14 years of the college, there was never a case where the administration was backing day of absence with the kind of fervor that it suddenly was at the point that it was white people who weren't supposed to show up. So this was clearly a, it was being used as a litmus test. Either you will agree not to show up or you're telling us you are the enemy of our movement. There was no place to stand where somebody like me who says, you know, I won't be told I can't show up to a public college because I'm white. Well, that's where I got the piece from where it was a binary choice. You're either allies or enemies. Was this to do with the new president who came in, who appears to me, firstly, appears very weak as an individual, which you know, I don't hold it against him, but 
felt too weak to handle the situation when it got out of control, but also felt like he came in almost with a social justice agenda for the college. Yes, but it's deeper than that. So one thing I would say is that the president, George Bridges, is a sociologist who his specialty did involve questions of racial injustice in, in jurisprudence, I believe. So there's a question about why he was hired, and I'm not sure we know the answer to that. Okay. He may have been hired to do this. But what is clear from the point of view of somebody who was there and was paying attention to the process was that it's not that he was too weak to handle the protest. I mean, I do think he was too weak, but he also initiated the processes that metastasized. So he set this in motion because he had an agenda which he would not have been able to accomplish had he not used race as a weapon. So to the extent that he was too weak to handle what happened, it was also his own chicken's home to roost. He set it in motion and then it came back to bite him. But I would point out, he somewhere in the many hours of video that emerged from the protests, which then became riots, he is talking privately to a bunch of the leaders of the riots. He has invited them into his office and he and the administration are talking to them. They're in fact negotiating with them. This is day one of the protest, I believe. And among other things, he tells them that the average tenure for a college president in the U.S. is something like four years. He's now been there he, he has not had a short-lived presidency. He has now outlasted the average tenure of a president. So let's be clear. It, it's hard for me to find polite terms for how I feel about this individual. He took a college that was capable of doing miraculous things for people who do not generally have resources pointed in their direction. It took students who were not well-built for your average college and gave them a potentially remarkable educational experience. So it was a very valuable place. And he almost single-handedly wrecked it. So I have my generosity towards this person is dwindling based on the massive costs to the college that have been endured in order to preserve his reputation. But in any case, he he generated the plan, he set it in motion, it did result in changes to the college, massive changes that he would have been able to unable to bring about as a result of the fact that among other things that were special about the place, faculty had unparalleled precedence in faculty in uh, academic governance. So at most colleges, the administration plays a very powerful role in academic governance. At Evergreen, that wasn't the case. The faculty had control over over the rules that were made for teaching. And in order to institute a new regime, he used race to divide the faculty. That's effectively what happened. And I think at some level, that's the underlying story of what happened at Evergreen. What you saw wasn't really it. Were there any racial problems before this? 
I don't know of any place on earth where there are no racial problems. However, anything of note, like was there an underlying tension? Were there debates about racial problems? There are always debates about racial problems. What was conspicuous at Evergreen was that there were claims of massive racial inequities. When the Equity Council began its work, it studied the question and it came up with a statistical analysis that suggested that there were serious racial inequities. However, this is a public college so it is possible to force documents to emerge through public records requests. And it is quite clear from that and from discussions with people who were present, people who were mathematically sophisticated and present for the statistical analysis, that the conclusion that there were racial disparities was foregone. And the data was cherry-picked in order to tell that story. And if you look at the actual data from which the data that was presented was originally taken, it, it tells a very different story, that in fact Evergreen was very successful at neutralizing disparities that walked through the door. So were there problems? No doubt. People are insensitive. Was Evergreen a place that had special problems? Quite the opposite. It was about as sensitive a place as you can imagine, a place where people would be willing to listen to almost anything that you would want to say about disparities that were there but were hard to see or something like that. So at the point, uh, maybe a year before the thing boiled over into public, allegations that there was a serious problem with white supremacy at Evergreen started to emerge and I started to ask questions about it like, okay, I'm willing to listen but can we see the evidence that that is true? And of course that got all kinds of paradoxical responses about asking for evidence is itself racism, etc. So, so we should just accept the accusation without any facts? You have no choice but to accept the accusation. I mean that's really the point is that this is a weapon and mm -hmm. the structure of the weapon is we are alleging that there are massive disparities that students of color are experiencing hostility, oppression, racism, bigotry, all of these things day in and day out and that anybody who says otherwise is the problem. That's the structure of the weapon. Who represents the people of color at the college? Was there a specific group themselves or was it the equity group, the equity council? Well, I mean, I, I have to be, it's very hard to get this right. Mm -hmm. I would say at Evergreen, who represents students of color? Everybody. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that they do it well, right? No, we all I have was... ignorance. But my point is the nature of the place is that people are sympathetic to claims of injustice. Mm -hmm. And so the entire place in some sense represents those who come from oppressed populations. It is sympathetic to those claims out the gate. Does there need to be an official body that represents people of color? I'm not even sure what people of color means in mm. that case. People of color is a designation that we are assigning. But, you know, I mean, first of all, when, when the Equity Council did its work and the day of absence was structured, you know, there were 
workshops during the day of absence about how Asians were part of the problem of white supremacy. So the point is it's people of color doesn't even mean people of color. People of color means people we want in the club and not people we don't want in the club, okay. right? You know, Jews are considered white for the purpose of accusing them of having historical unearned privilege, even though Jews were obviously enslaved and murdered in massive numbers in the heart of Europe in the middle of the last century. So the whole story is incoherent. Who represents people of color? Uh, I don't know. This whole thing emerged for a political purpose and it, it drew the lines of who people of color were in an arbitrary fashion. What um, I meant was, were there specific individuals or a specific group coming to the Equity Council explaining that there are currently problems in the college? Ah. Uh, well, here's the problem is we are going to go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. The, when the president came to Evergreen, yeah. he was newly hired. He hired a friend of his, a guy named Stan Chernikoff, who interviewed I, – initially I thought Stan was a good move and Stan went around and he interviewed hundreds of people and the idea was he was going to find out how the college actually worked for the purpose of informing the new president so the new president could act intelligently rather than just hauling off and doing things that wouldn't have fit the place. But in fact, Stan was drawing a map. He was mapping the faculty. He was mapping our tensions. He was mapping them for the purpose of the president wielding a kind of power that the founders of Evergreen never imagined its president would wield. And in effect, the Equity Council was staffed with bad actors. Not everybody on the Equity Council was a bad actor, but the bad actors were on the Equity Council and their purpose was for them to make trouble that would then create the opportunity for the president to make the changes to the college that he wanted to make, which again, he would not have had the power to under normal circumstances. And this pattern was consistent. It wasn't just the Equity Council. After the riots, the protester who was caught on film multiple times orchestrating the kidnapping of the faculty and the, and the administration. He, I mean, it's literal kidnapping. He has them corralled in a room where they are not being allowed to leave. He's instructing other people to make sure that they don't leave. The president, at the point he needs to get up to go to the bathroom, has to get permission. He has to be ex escorted by two people in order to go to the bathroom. It's a kidnapping. Now, it's unbelievable to hear. Well. It's unbelievable, but here's the, here's the more unbelievable thing that people don't know. So you have a kidnapping. Uh -huh. It's caught on video, so we know exactly who said what. There's no ambiguity whatsoever. As far as I know, nobody denies anything. The kidnapper in chief ends up being placed by the president on the committee that the following summer after the riots – rewrites the student code of conduct. He's paid to be on this committee. So you take the worst of the worst and you put him in charge of writing the rules for other students. This is somebody who had been an RA in the dorms and had abused his power, who had kidnapped, who had orchestrated the protest at my classroom, 50 students I'd never met, some of whom didn't know why they were there and he effectively threatened them and said, you have to go and protest at Brett's classroom, whether you, whether you understand why or not. So that guy didn't belong 
on a committee writing rules for other students. But that's exactly where he ended up, and he was being paid by the state to do it. Wow. I mean, it sounds to me this is one of those situations where the, the bullies win, and there's some, I guess, misguided person who thinks they're an activist, but actually they're a bully, and their modus operandi is really out of kilter with what you would expect for proper open discourse to resolve a problem. It feels like he's just bullied himself into a role. And, and this is where I come back. I, th I think the president was weak. He came across as very weak. He came across in almost every situation that he could be shouted down and become almost just shouted down. And I mean, the, the moment where he's told to put his arms down was... It was many me, moments, in fact. Well, there was that. Well, I saw one specifically, and then somebody came and mocked him behind him. Oh, and sure. I, I thought this whole situation is ridiculous. It felt like he... One of the best things would have been the removal of him from the whole situation. Oh, of course. It's out of his depth. Oh. So, How would that have happened? How could that have happened, and why didn't it? Well, it didn't because as weak as the president of Evergreen was, the governor of the state of Washington is even worse. Okay. So the governor of the state of Washington, Jay Inslee, his office is literally eight miles from where the riots unfolded at Evergreen. So at Evergreen, I can defend this for you if you'd like, but we had a week of literal anarchy. As I understand it from the chief of police of the Evergreen Police Force, I was being hunted for by a band of anarchists and the president had ordered the police to stay out of it. So you have a college in which the jurisdiction is a, the campus police force and the president happens to be in a position to order them not to intervene. He does so, leaving roving bands of students with weapons. There's actual physical violence. And as this is unfolding, my wife and I, my wife was literally Evergreen's most popular professor. I wasn't too far behind, but she was literally the most popular professor at Evergreen. We took, she happened to be on sabbatical, so she had no students. I had students. A group of students of mine and my wife, Evergreen's most popular professor, and I went to the governor's office and asked to talk to him. We were told he wasn't there. That may very well be true. We spoke to two of his top deputies, his deputy for higher education and his deputy for civil rights. They were initially dismissive of the story we were telling because it was too preposterous. But we ultimately convinced them that in fact anarchy had broken out at Evergreen and that this was a very volatile and dangerous situation and that the governor needed to act. As far as I know, the governor of the state of Washington has still not mentioned what happened at Evergreen more than two years later. Somehow this all unfolded eight miles from his office and his house and he has steered entirely clear of it, even though obviously the board of trustees of Evergreen should have fired the president. It's ununderstandable, and members of boards of trustees of other colleges that I've talked to about this are scratching their heads over how the board of trustees could possibly have not fired George. But the board of trustees serves at the pleasure of the governor. So this is directly his responsibility, and the fact that the college is you know, down by 50%, its student body is down by 50%, it is uh, unable to pay its bills, it is laying people off 
at an incredible rate, which means that it can't deliver the educational goods that it is supposed to deliver. So the even tiny student body that remains is not being well served. Of course, the governor needs to fire the board of trustees, fire the president, and start over. This is it's in the interest of the people of the state of Washington that Inslee do this. How he has avoided doing it is anybody's guess and why he would avoid it. Do you think there's a – this is where we go to political correctness gone mad and there is a fear of ever challenging somebody who might have come from a minority who has some – some reason to question what's going on. Do you think this is just fear I don't want to upset maybe a black community? Well, again, I mean, this is something I should have said a few minutes ago. This was not the students of color of Evergreen. This was a small subset of the students of color of Evergreen and quite a number of white anarchists and quite a number of well-intentioned white students who thought they were doing the right thing because, because they were liberals. But there were a large number of students who wanted no part of this. And in fact, the Sil violence... The silent I, majority. Not even silent. There were some very courageous students who wanted no part of this. Okay. But the sad part is what happened to them. So my wife and I had a student on our... We had a study abroad program in 2016, the year okay. before the riots where in the final quarter of the year-long program, we took 30 students to Ecuador and spent 11 weeks traveling to the Amazon, to Galapagos. Anyway, these were wow. students we knew quite well. There was one student in that class, a young woman who, of mixed race, half black, who during the riots was walking across campus and was cornered by, of course, the very same bullies who accused her effectively of being a race traitor for studying science. Now, I don't quite know how to process that story. I don't know how to process what you've just said. <laughs> it, it's so maddening that anybody would attempt to stigmatize and intimidate a person who wished to study science, somebody who said, you know, I don't feel racism at Evergreen. That was like a sin to admit that you were a person of color and you didn't feel like Evergreen had a special problem. That was uh, setting yourself up for special derision and intimidation because, of course, even a small number of people of color saying, actually, the story doesn't make sense uh, puts the lie to it. And so they effectively needed to silence those who would speak against the narrative. And this is something people need to be aware of, is that you can't walk into these stories and know what's going on. I mean, if my wife and I hadn't stood up and did what we did, the coup at Evergreen might well have gone off silently, right? It was only because there was some pushback, and it wasn't just Heather and me, but it was on the faculty side, it was almost just Heather and me. And that resulted in dramatic footage that called the world's attention to this, which then resulted in people actually looking into the story, people like Mike Nana, who's done a wonderful three-part documentary, Benjamin Boyce, the uh, Evergreen grad who's in the middle of a many-part series on what actually happened at Evergreen. This allows us to understand the story, but 
what you need to extrapolate to is what you would know if those factors hadn't come together. And the answer is you would probably, if you knew anything at all about what happened at Evergreen, you would probably think, oh, there were some racial tensions, maybe things got a little out of hand, who knows. The idea that actually those racial tensions were trumped up and that the riots were about the reversal of an imagined narrative of oppression, that this was a power play, those things require an in-depth investigation to even understand. And the question is, what don't we know about other places? We know about Evergreen, but what don't we know about what happens elsewhere? You mentioned a coup. If, if that had happened, what were the changes that they would have wanted to implement at the college? Obviously, we've talked about the change to the day of absence, but are there other things they wanted? Yes. I mean, there's a question about they. There's a question about the equity council and what it wanted, and then there's a question about the president and what he wanted. The thing about Evergreen is it was, it was a radical experiment in education, and mm -hmm. the experiment was half brilliant. So the founders of the college threw out virtually every rule and structure that makes a normal college work. And they replaced them with their best guess of what would work better. And they got about half of it right and maybe they got half of it wrong. The half that was gotten wrong could have been fixed. But instead of fix it, there was a desire to unhook the part that really worked. So the, the key to the place was that faculty had complete freedom to teach what they wanted in whatever way they wanted and no administrator was in a position to tell you not to. The only exception to that are you had to teach your share of freshmen and I suppose if no student showed up to your course, they, they could tell you to teach something else. But basically, you had a blank canvas. It's like a, sounds like a free market for education. Well, it is and both things that a free market produces happened. So for a small number of highly dedicated faculty, this was paradise because what you could do is throw out the rule book, figure out what really should be in a curriculum and build it and see how it worked and then innovate on it you know, year after year. And the other thing that made it special was that classes, which we called programs, were full time. That means students take one class at a time, professors teach one class at a time, which means that you get to know each other incredibly well. Mm -hmm. So my experience and Heather's experience was that when we walked into our classroom, we knew everybody in the room. We were in a position effectively to model what they were hearing us say and to tailor the lessons so that it really landed. That was on the plus side. The downside is in an environment where you're licensed to teach anything you want in any way you want, nobody's in a position to say you're not meeting the standard. And so there were a lot of lazy faculty who basically produced make work and delivered ideology rather than meaningful content. And so anyway, both things existed simultaneously at Evergreen and what ultimately happened is that the faculty that did not wish to utilize this for educational purposes mutinied. And uh, we were left with a challenge of the remaining part of the good part of Evergreen by the part that wasn't serving anybody. But the, the reason I'm down this road is mm. that a college in which your professor really knows you and they really care about you, they're not getting highly paid 
they're there because they want to be there. That college is in a position to educate people who would be lost in another environment. I must say this is personal to me because I was always a terrible fit for school. But at Evergreen, I could teach in a way that people who were like me were not lost. To have that college destroyed over this insanity is appalling because there's no, there's no backup plan for students who are not well built for college. And to turn Evergreen into just another unimaginative place distributing ideology and not paying attention to the individuals in the room, it's, it's a tragic loss. One thing that was really hard for me to figure out in doing the research for this, this might sound funny, is I actually couldn't finger what their real bone of contention is and what changes that were desired beyond you being fired. It was very hard to actually pinpoint what, what is it you're actually complaining for here? Um, yeah. I think the thing is you're looking for an object that doesn't quite exist. Yeah. And the object that answers your question is unsatisfying. Well, because lots of the people during the protests, especially in the classrooms or in the rooms where they were shouting or singing and dancing, there was no consistency between the people. It just felt like there were a group of people who just wanted to shout and swear and almost like they were doing it for the attention of the room rather than a real purpose. And I don't want to... I don't want to patronize or condescend people because maybe some people did have a real bone of contention, but the, it felt it was more for attention than for a purpose because I, I couldn't find a coherent narrative between the people. Yeah, well, at the point that you're looking for a coherent narrative, you're not going to find it, but you will find a generating function. They wanted power. Yeah. And that doesn't explain everybody in the room because some of the people in the room were allies who were trying to do the right thing who were tools of those seeking power. But the generating function is they wanted power and they wanted power. I mean, and you, if you look through the hundreds of hours of video, you know, they want the cafeteria to stay open for them. They want free gumbo. They want not to be penalized for not turning in their homework. So there's a lot of really mundane stuff on the list of demands that emerges over the course of the protest. But everything you said there is a change that would be for everyone. That doesn't seem to be anything that's racially profiled. It's whatever crosses your mind at the moment. You right, want okay. power. I want you to put your hands down. That makes me feel good because I'm exercising power over you. I don't really feel threatened by your hands. If I try to parse the story that the students felt threatened by this incredibly weak white man gesticulating with his hands as he tries to explain stuff. There's no way anybody felt threatened by George. I mean, George could frankly make a fist and it's not threatening. He's too weak, Yeah. right? But being able to take the president of the college and tell him when he gets to use his hands, that's power. To tell him when he gets to pee, that's power. And so the bad actors were really looking to gain power and to evidence that they had it. So they were just using race as a tool. Of course. Yeah. Of course. And the tragedy is all of the people who wouldn't have done that, who ended up being tools of those who would, or people who ended up being silenced so that they didn't end up on the wrong end of those that would. Well, this is where you get to peer pressure and mob mentality. Of course. I mean, I've just, you know, it's not the same story, but I've just, yesterday I was in my hotel and I on Netflix I watched the Red Roll Red or Roll Red Roll. The story, it's, it's the story of a group of football players at a school in Ohio who end up raping a young girl uh, because she's passed out drunk. And they were explaining how 
most people would never be involved in a situation or accept a situation like that. But as a group of young lads, once one starts, there's like a peer pressure to become involved. And this this peer pressure is it's quite scary on young people. Oh, it's terrifying. What it is cap- I mean, it is capable of creating gas chambers. I mean, that's the thing mm. is there's a, a dark theme in human history and it evidences itself in various ways. But the subject of the conversation and the mechanisms through which this thing acts are distinct. So I did not know at the point that what unfolded in my classroom unfolded what the immediate explanation for it was. It just so happens that the class that I was teaching was called Hacking Human Nature and what it was about was how civilization functions and fails to function and never mind the question of how you might get the power to change civilization if you were going to write the rules for civilization that would actually work, that would create well-being and distribute it in some fair way, what would those rules look like? And we had in fact talked about the historical instances of witch hunts and other things that look like them. We had talked about why that happens and uh, anyway, we had had, we'd had it on the board maybe two days before the, uh, the protest broke out of my class. And when the protest broke out of my class, I did say at some point I was being interviewed somewhere and I said that it was, it had the character of a witch hunt and people of course reacted terribly to my alleging that this was in some way like a witch hunt. And then months later, I found that the lead protester, again, like this guy who ends up writing the student code of conduct on that committee, ends up kidnapping the administrators, he had posted on his Facebook wall a statement, something to the effect of, never have white men hidden in the shadows of themselves and feared the hunting of witches or something like this. He had invoked witch hunting a couple of days before he had sent students to my classroom basically saying it's time for white men to experience being hunted as a witch. And it, the thing that shocked me about this is not only was this a witch hunt, but even the people perpetrating it understood that it was a witch hunt. That was its purpose, right? It was simply to reverse in their minds, that injustice. White people have hunted other people in this way, so it's time we start hunting them. And it's like, well, okay, at the point that you know that you are, that the bias of humans tends to be, you look at a situation like what happened in Germany in the 30s, or you look at you know, the witch hunts in Salem, and you think, oh, I really hope I would have been on the right side, right? But these people, actually identified with the people on the wrong side of the witch hunt. So that's a shocking fact to me. What's the outcome been? Obviously, you know, you left. But you must be aware of what's happening at Evergreen. You must know people there. What's the outcome been? How, how has it changed? Has it, has it destroyed the college? It has destroyed the college. Okay. What is difficult to understand is the college is effectively how do I even say it? It has a a student body that is half what it should be. The stories of what goes on in the college are of a faculty that is entirely demoralized, a campus that has no... Fearful a, as well? 
of it happening again? I don't think it could happen again, but you have to understand, so I took a lot of flack for using email to talk about the problems that were going on at Evergreen, and then ultimately talking to the press as things boiled over. But there was no other option because those options that would normally exist had been eradicated. So the president had in some way changed the structure of faculty meetings. Faculty meetings used to be places where evergreen faculty disagreed with each other openly and freely and because of the structure of the college, it wasn't like the untenured faculty were timid and only the tenured faculty had forceful positions. It was an open forum and they turned into a pedantic exercise where everything was scripted, there was no opportunity to ask questions, etc. So the point was, email was the only place that we had access to each other fully. And so I resorted to it. That is now gone also. So this is a tiny school or a small school. And there's no reason the faculty should not be able to email each other. Of but course of course, a authoritarian nightmare like George Bridges can't abide faculty talking to each other. So they have instituted a policy where basically everything that is mailed to the faculty has to be reviewed by, you know, some entity that yada, yada, yada. So in essence... Layers of bureaucracy. <laughs> well, let's put it this way. It is, it is a caricature of the, uh, you know, the little communist dictatorship of course, is what yeah. it is. And all of the elements are there, including the demoralized population, the uh, economic hard times that accompany it. I mean, it, it could hardly be a better model for the hazards of that kind of thinking. The question really is, why doesn't the state put it out of its misery? And, you know, I mean, they could, the thing that we assumed was going to happen to it at the point that it began to collapse was that it would maybe become a branch campus of the University of Washington, you know, UW or something. But instead, it's just being left in this state where it doesn't have students and it doesn't have a path to gain them. It's only getting worse because essential functions are being cut, so it doesn't have something with which to attract a new population of people who might be interested in giving the place a chance. So I don't know. It's like a dead college walking. One thing that also stood out to me, and again, this might be just, you know, this might be just because I haven't seen everything that happened. I'm just going based on the footage, and maybe the footage is extreme, but in a room where the president is being repeatedly yelled at, interned by people who were swearing and shouting and stamping on the floor, it seemed to me there was a lack of strong leadership amongst the people protesting to actually try and calm the situation and have some form of, I don't know, kind of fair discourse. At the point where people are just repeatedly shouting at somebody, there's no progress to be made. It is just bullying. But what would have were there situations where they were getting groups of people, maybe a smaller group of, say, five or six people around the table to represent both sides to have some kind of fair discussion? You know, again, I... I think it's just hard to accept that that this was a con. But the people who were driving 
were not interested in a discussion. Okay. They were not interested in making points. They were not interested in discovering where they were wrong because this was not a good faith exercise. This was a power grab. And this is very confusing to most of us because we can't imagine being in their shoes. It is also difficult for us to understand because so many of the people involved in the protest were simply confused about where they were in history. So if the leaders are cynical and involved in grabbing power for themselves and the rank and file of the movement are well-intentioned but confused, what you tend to see are the rank and file and assume that the whole movement is like them. But no, the leadership has far more influence over the way this unfolded than, than the, uh, the rank and file do. Right, and they whip up a crowd, they cause a shitstorm. Yep. And because of that, it creates pressure and they end up getting the results they require, but it's ultimately at the cost of the people who they have pressured into joining them in this. Not only that, it was also the biggest cost to be paid here was they crashed a college that was positioned to serve people who were not well served by other colleges. People who are most harmed by what happened are students who are poorly served by other places who might have gotten a good education at Evergreen. And in particular, if your hope is for people who come from populations that are historically oppressed to gain equal footing, this was the kind of place that could provide a means to that end. And to crash it for, you know, social media likes or YouTube clicks or whatever it is that they crashed it for or to get, you know, free gumbo and not lose credit for skipping class or, you know, that stuff is just, it's, it's a mind-numbing waste. Yeah. And also, I guess it seems like a lot of these people, they're quite young, potentially immature and a little bit out of their depth in the things that they were getting involved in, you know. And I do wonder, like, when I was, say, 20... We wouldn't have protested like this. We didn't have the. We didn't have people with phones filming it for YouTube. We didn't have things to share on social media. It's a very different environment now. It seems like, it seems like everybody, well not everybody, but lots of people want to become part of something, some kind of campaign or demonstration. And also, this bleeds into the recent fear I've had of the left that has been growing, where I'm increasingly seeing censorship or people being shouted down, or groups of people, you know, I've talked about Antifa, who seem to be an oxymoron themselves, and it, it seems to be a lot of violence and anger and censorship coming from the left, which shouldn't be where it's coming from. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know, there are a lot of factors here, Yeah. and, you know, I saw this in Occupy too, which I was initially quite favorable towards, but what was going on inside of Occupy was utopian, anarchist nonsense. There was no, I don't want to say there was no solution orientation, but there was this naive fantasy on the part of many of the people who drove the conversation that was simply not going to manifest in any sort of policy improvement. 
in any way. So the left has lost touch. And I think one thing that is probably true is the left has been out of power for so long. And, you know, those on the right are going to bridle at this, right? But that thing, that Democrat thing that gets in power every now and again in the U.S. is not the left, right? The DNC is not a left-leaning organization. It is a right-leaning organization. Mm -hmm. And so the left has not had power in so long that I believe it actually has lost touch with what to ask for and how to wield power responsibly. I think well, it just they blocked know. out Bernie Sanders, didn't they? I mean, I don't fully understand how this works. The DNC actually works, <laughs> it, you know, because I'm from the UK. Right. I, but but as I was aware of it during the before the election, it seemed to me like Bernie was ahead of Hillary, but Bernie was blocked out. It, yeah. Explain to me how that happens. Well, first of all, you have to understand that Bernie is not a Democrat, and so he caucuses with the Democrats, which makes sense because mm -hmm. otherwise he's an army of one. Um, but the internal politics of the parties is built to prevent choice from emerging in the primaries. In other words, your choice gets narrowed in the primaries and then maybe you get a legit shot at a vote in the general election, but the point is all of the dangerous stuff, the dangerous stuff being where change actually happens and therefore progress might be possible, uh, has been eliminated in the primary. So then you have a horse race at the end that is not really about change, it's about something else. In the case of the 2016 election, we had a very interesting circumstance where people have gotten so sick of being manipulated by the two parties that we had a mutiny in both places, right? Or mutiny is probably the wrong term. Maybe um, we had an insurrection. And the insurrection on the left was Bernie. I was a Bernie supporter. I was a Bernie supporter right through the general election. In fact, I could not vote for Hillary. But so many people were frustrated on both sides that both parties lost control of the apparatus that allows them to maintain control under normal circumstances. The DNC regained control and pulled the rug out from under Bernie, who would indeed have crushed Clinton and probably beaten Trump. At the point that the DNC pulled the rug out from under Bernie using things like the AP to create the impression that Bernie was about to lose and things like that, at the point that, that Bernie lost the primaries and then embraced Clinton, all of the energy that wanted to vote against business as usual had to either sign up for business as usual or sign up for Donald Trump. And so this explains why a lot of people moved from Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump, which doesn't seem like a rational move, unless your point is anything but business as usual, right? And a lot of mm -hmm. people did that. They, they weren't enthusiastic about Trump, but they voted for him because he wasn't... Uh, Hillary. <laughs> yeah, because they didn't know how the story ended, yeah. right? And so that's where we are, is that... We've had two demonstrations, one on the left and one on the right, that people are sick enough of business as usual that they are willing to gamble on a non-standard move. And the question is, are we going to suffer through another election of the power players failing to grasp 
what they are up against and what its meaning is. And the real conundrum, actually, is that the Democratic and Republican parties have become influence-peddling organizations. They're effectively like crime families. And they cannot make the move that would make them popular and gain them power because it is in conflict with their business model. So their business model involves cutting average people out of the spoils of civilization and cutting people in on the spoils of civilization would make them popular, but of course it would mean giving up those spoils, which they don't want to do. And so they are stuck figuring out what else to feed people that they will believe. And this is in part the explanation for what's going on in the social justice movement, which is how could you gain political power if you're not willing to cut people in on the spoils? Well, you could transfer spoils from one group to another, not your spoils, but their spoils. So in effect, people are being organized around things like race and gender and sexual orientation to demand well-being that is currently in the pockets of people who are not particularly well better off, uh, better off than they are, right? So it is another, it's a new version of the same old divide and conquer political strategy that we've seen between the parties that's now unfolding within the, the Democratic Party. So how do you think this is going to play out in the next election? Wow. If well, I had, who do you think is going to, who do you think and who would you like to have the nomination for the Democrats? For the Democrats, mm. I would like to see Yang or Gabbard. Interesting. Or they could team up. That would be a desirable outcome. That said, I don't know what happens. You know, let's say Yang gets the nomination. Let's say he wins the presidency. I have a hard time imagining that the entity that has fought so hard to prevent meaningful change is going to simply roll over. So I, I honestly cannot tell you what mechanism would be brought to bear, but I have the sense that as although I am quite sure that Yang is a smart and decent fellow as he appears and that he is creative and interested in change and, you know, as WYSIWYG a presidential candidate as you can hope for, I have the sense that we would learn something about how our democracy resists change under emergency circumstances if he won that would not be heartening. Yeah, I, I find politics very interesting, but also I'm kind of becoming more apathetic to it because I don't feel like our vote really ever makes any change that much. I just... I'm, you know, especially I'm seeing what's happened in the UK with Brexit. We've had a vote. Now people want another vote. We don't know what it means. It's, the whole process is very difficult to become engaged in because I've gone beyond believing these people care about us in, in, as individuals and want better for the population. And actually, it's more about themselves and their own personal careers. And so I'm personally very apathetic to politics right now to the point where I'm, as, as bad as it sounds, I may not even vote because I don't care now. Well, you know, I, I would counsel you away from that. Okay. I don't think that your Good. sense that it is that it has been robbed of its power is incorrect. But I do think there is something to be said. I, I think we are in very unusual circumstances. And what I would say is your vote is actually inexpensive in one regard, which is let's say that we discover that our democracy has been completely unhooked from 
actual power and that it has been turned into a, a, you know, a race to preoccupy us, but actual power functions in some other way. Well, it seems to me you still need to vote in order to justify the kinds of responses that you might have to a democracy that wasn't in any way democratic. So I would say vote so you have a position from which to legitimately complain about what's happening. That would be a start. But I would also say the 2016 election did demonstrate something, as did the Brexit election, which is that they demonstrated that whatever it is that controls our democracies is losing control. Mm -hmm. Presumably it did not want Donald Trump elected. I don't think it would have wanted Bernie Sanders elected either. Presumably it did not want Brexit to pass. And so the fact is what we've discovered is that through some pathway we don't understand, power still exists in the voting booth and learning how to operate it would be smart. Okay. I think that's fair. All right, I'm going to finish on one final question. Sure. I've really appreciated this and your time. I've totally not covered anything I had in my list in a way, but it's, it's been fascinating. But what I did want to ask you is it's a very weird, crazy world right now. And perhaps it always feels like that, but it does feel like a very strange world we're in at the moment. You as a evolutionary theorist and biologist, historically, like how do you take everything in that's happening in the world right now? You know, the, the rise of Trump, Brexit, the constant war over is global warming real, isn't how, how are we going to solve it? You know, this does feel like there's a lot of tension in the world. It feels like the world's very tense at the moment. There's a lot of questionable problems with China and control and, you know, companies who are censoring themselves to keep China happy. We've got the expansion of their Belt and Road program. We've got Turkey now entering Syria. It feels to me a very tense world at the moment. I don't know if you're... History and as uh, history as an evolutionary theorist brings you to any conclusions, but I'd be interested to know what, how you feel about things. Um, it brings me to several conclusions, one of which I hesitate to offer because I think it can easily be taken the wrong way. But I do think that we are at a new level of incoherence, and that that sense that this story just doesn't even add up is novel. I think it is quite true that there is often a true story of history and then there's the public narrative of history and they are not the same story in general. But the true story makes sense. It may not be defensible, but it's at least it's comprehensible. In this incoherent moment, the real question is how do you figure out what to pay attention to and what to ignore? And Figuring out what to ignore may be every bit as important to figuring out where we're headed as figuring out what to pay attention to. In other words, the noise may be so disruptive of a valid model that filtering out things that mislead may be the key to understanding what you're seeing. And this is, in fact, not so unlike biology. If you walk into a tropical forest you have to ignore almost everything in order to deduce pattern because there's so much going on simultaneously. Mm -hmm. You get to it in a, in a sequence. You don't get to it all at once. So as for how to do that, I would say, look, we've never beaten the scientific method 
for understanding how things work, nor do I expect we ever will. I think it's it may be altered in its particular description, but in in essence, it is the best way we have of figuring out how things function, and it works just the same way with respect to events in the world as it does everywhere else, which is that you build a model, that model makes predictions, and then you see if those predictions are manifest. And if you do that based on, if I pay attention to this source, if I pay attention to events in this story, it increases my ability to predict what's going to happen next, then there's probably a lot of signal in there. If paying attention to something else results in no increase in the ability to predict, or worse, it ends in a decrease in your ability to predict, it's probably too noisy to be useful. And simply paying attention to that which actually empowers you to see farther is it's crude but effective. And are you optimistic right now? Well, I've come to a state that has elements of both optimism and pessimism. Okay. I think there is still time to regain control of the ship, and I think it is possible to get from here to a very positive, steady state for humanity, one that would recover substantially on all of the values that I think we should share. However, I'm watching the dysfunction and I'm thinking we are hurtling towards a point at which we will no longer have the power to get to that positive end state. And if I had to bet, I would bet that the opportunity that exists will vanish without our capitalizing on it. Okay. That's a good point to end. Uh, <laughs> it's an right, end point for sure. Yeah. And uh, I think I would at some point, if I'm back in Portland, I'd like to follow up and talk about some other things with you because obviously there's many other subjects you're probably interested in and things I find fascinating. But Yeah, I yeah. can't believe we've spent all this time talking about Evergreen. Yeah, well, I mean, that was the background. and But what was very interesting is I got to ask you a couple of questions that I don't think anyone had asked you that were important to me that gave me uh, a better picture of what happened. And then there were other things I, I wanted to cover with you, but they feel like separate topics. Yeah, I'll talk about them afterwards, but no, I really appreciate your time and I think I'd definitely like to do a follow-up in a few months or whenever I'm back in Portland. Great, I'd love it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Defiance and I hope you enjoyed that interview with Brett. While this story has been covered on other podcasts, there were questions that weren't answered for me, so I'm really grateful to Brett for coming on the show and giving me some of his time. Also, before we close out, I do want to say a massive thanks to my sponsor, Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. Find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com.